Today's episode is sponsored by decibelwines.com. So from all the places we ship to, like New Zealand, Australia, and the United States, everywhere except Utah, I believe, uh, use the promo code DBPODCAST and get 10% off your first order. That includes the new release Testify, the 2016 Pinot, which is not in the U.S. yet, Uh, our latest release of Viognier, a 2018 gem that's uh, done well with the critics so far, and... Uh, the first crack at the Junta Malbec Nouveau, which is sold out now, so you got to wait till next year. But yeah, first crack at that through our website. We always release everything there first, and we ship to so many places now. It's available throughout the EU, all over the EU, Singapore, Japan, Hong Kong, and of course the United Kingdom. Brexiters, no fear, we can still ship you wine. Just visit decibelwines.com. Click Shop Decibel Wines, then choose your flag. It's very easy. Okay, let's start the show. Okay, welcome back. Last episode of the year, and a great one with winemaker, technical director of Tomata State, Peter Cowley. We had a great conversation, and um, yeah, before we get to that, I've got a little bee in my bonnet, uh, just dealing with some stuff here, sending out wines, and yeah, just sort of general wine industry stuff for you. Uh, consumers out there, this is a bit of a pulling back of the curtain for uh, winemakers and people in the industry. You know all too well about the issue of lots and lots of money spent on uh, the fringes of the industry. Uh, and I'm not just talking about these wine shows and uh, even expos and things that cost a lot of money and tasting events that cost a lot of money, uh, but particularly wine magazines and wine writers, uh, recently was asked to submit to uh, Decanter magazine, and I don't think it's a big deal to say anything about them. Uh, They're a prestigious magazine, Uh, but geez, the amount of money you have to spend to ship the wine there per wine, send in four bottles of each, Uh, and then I think it's something like $250 per wine to enter, and I guess my big question is, for what? Yes, it's nice to get a lot of wine scores, and I think there's, uh, and some wine reviews, uh, and I think they offer medals and things like that. Um, And it's nice to have your wine written about. Uh, I guess it's cumulative, uh, in my opinion, that the more your wine is out there and people read about it, you know, the more it's uh, in the zeitgeist and people are aware of your wines. But I also think there's a lot of options out there. And I think that, um, you know, there's some great wine writers here in New Zealand and in America and in the UK for that matter. And what do you really get out of it? Uh, I I ask you, of course, I, I just don't know of anybody who's had a game-changing 
uh, wine <laughs> review or or uh, or something you know outside of maybe the hundred port point Parker score or something like that. And even I've gotten some good Parker scores and hasn't done anything crazy, mostly for my Pinot Noir. And in America, the Pinot doesn't do as well there as it does uh, down here in New Zealand and Australia. So yeah, just a little bit annoyed with that situation. And, and uh, I don't know, I just wonder how many uh, younger people and middle age, even up into people my age, actually, who love wine, actually read Decanter or or Wine Advocate or uh, some of these other real high end uh, publications. Um, and so, why should I submit to it? I think if I just don't want to. So, uh, just a recent conversation this morning, and I do want to end the year on a positive note. And it's sort of ironic because I probably would have gone into this interview with Peter had I not met him a few times earlier and known what a great guy he is uh, with a little bit of like, well, Tomata's this sort of conservative, um, uh, very different operation than, say, Decibel Wines or a lot of the new guard and uh, younger winemakers coming up. But, uh, you know, Peter and I got on great. I have a high respect for his winemaking and their wines. Uh, we certainly do things very differently, uh, but that doesn't mean we probably have a lot more in common uh, than we have uh, differences. So it was just such a great conversation, and uh, I think we're better friends now. I think you can almost hear the friendship evolving during the the conversation. And, uh, you know, the guy just knows so much about New Zealand wine history and Hawke's Bay wine history. And I think it speaks to him that, you know, we did about an hour and I don't think I dug really that deep into him and his story that much. He sort of glazed over it and wanted to talk more about the Hawke's Bay industry and the story of Tomata. And uh, anyway, great conversation. And uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. Cheers. why you do a sound check because it wasn't quite quite going um right so yeah you think you'll be pretty good you're not one of those quiet talkers like uh i'm always always afraid that the one day if i can score george fistinich that uh, we won't be able to hear oh i I don't see him often enough but uh, they they say he's a quiet talker yeah i've heard a few people over the years say oh we had him at this event and Everybody was really polite, but nobody knew what the heck he was saying. Couldn't hear a word. <laughs> Couldn't hear a word. Yeah. Um, I, d- I do find myself, it's, it's. Uh, uh, I mean, it's not a thing, but, it, you know, recently I find myself fading a bit when I'm talking across the room, um, which is pretty crazy. It's not going to affect this. I'm, no, I'm no. I've normally got nice, quite a big voice. Nice, quiet well, room. And I've heard you yeah. public speak, so we're now recording, not that I'm going to start yeah. before that, but... Um, um, I have heard you do some public speaking, so I always thought, well, that'd be a good guy to chat to. And then I think, did I see a picture of you on a motorcycle in that Hawks Bay book, the uh, yeah. Mark Sweet book? Yeah. Back in, yeah. what year do you think that photo was from? That's pretty cute. No, well, you know, time flies away. It probably 15, maybe. 15 uh, Yeah, years. 2015. Uh, oh, and that photo was? Oh, yeah. No, really? I thought yeah. that photo was from... 
Yeah, the bike's pretty old. Oh, That's okay. a 77. <laughs> Posty bike, uh, CT90 Honda. Is that the one? Yeah, that's the one you meant. It was in the vineyard with uh, just a little kind of scooter thing. It was the middle of vintage. And that was uh, that was fairly recent. Yeah, yeah, it must how, be. How long have you had that bike, though? Not that long. So you collect uh, some old ones? Yeah, too? I've got a shed full of old Hondas, mostly, and then a couple that I drive on the on the road. Um that are oldish bikes anyway. I just tend to buy old stuff. Yeah. Yeah. New stuff costs you money and uh, doesn't, go, fun doesn't anyway. go any better. And uh, yeah, no, I like old gear. So why Honda? Well, I was a Honda guy at school, university, mm-hmm. and um, it just stays with you. Just, yeah, yeah, stuck one, one day, you know, you can't leave it behind and then you wake up one day when you're about 50 and, uh, and you just get another one. And it's usually the same one you sold when you were 20. Yeah, you, you know? wish you had the same yeah, one it's, back it's again. It's a bit of a thing. So I bought five of those in the meantime. <laughs> got rid of got rid of three of them. I've still got two. And where was... Uh, well, you said you were born in Blenheim. Yeah. Where was uni? <clears throat> where was what? Uni. Uni. Well, the old boy was in the Air Force. Uh, that's why I was born in Blenheim. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that was a... Air Force Station and still is and, and we ended up I was born there we went back twice and Singapore twice in between but uh, he he uh, he said right I'll get a posting to Auckland when you guys start university so that's that's what well, happened that was nice of him yeah but do you remember Singapore I don't remember the first time I was very young but uh, I, we left the second time when I was 10 and I remember it well there's always here just a lot of expats and there but you know i don't know how how did you find the what, culture well, and were you how long you got here so i could, i mean i that was just good good times you know when you're 10 and we had cousins up there too and uh uh well you know we you know changi was 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 just a village but the beach you know we spent a lot of time there and and our cousins they uh their company had a had a uh Either they had access or they owned a sort of a faux, um, uh, sort of Shakespearean-looking mansion on Pulau Ubin, which which is still there. Someone told me, um, and we used to get out there in the weekends. And anyway, great that sounds time. Sounds fun, yeah. I finally got back. I I I always remembered the place fondly, and uh, had had never been anywhere in Singapore apart from the airport. And two years ago, Gail and I went for a week, and uh, no one. No one can believe we went for a week, let alone had a good time. It was it was great. Mm. Love loved the place. What? Uh, so he was working for the Air Force now or the airport? Yeah, the, the Air Force. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the uh, Royal New Zealand Air Force. Well, the, the Commonwealth were, you know, Singapore was part of that. Um, sure. And uh, so the Australians and New Zealanders and uh, the Brits had Air Force bases in, in Singapore and... Uh, my father was the engineering officer for Number Forty One Squadron. Who, in in the second trip, they they had Bristol freighters, just a classic English mm. aircraft that that actually gained something of a reputation. They had a taxi run up through Thailand. So the the Vietnam War was had just started or was about to start as as we were leaving, and they 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 got a reputation for being the most reliable kind of aircraft on that run. They'd run up spare parts and bits and pieces all up through didn't go into vietnam but just you know right on the border and, and uh 
Yeah, it's a good story. Mm. And the classic, they call it, they call the Bristol Freighter something like 40,000 rivets flying in close formation. I mean, it's most unaerodynamic looking thing. <laughs> Two big Bristol Hercules sleeve valve motors that make so much smoke. And when you're flying one at night, it's just flame shooting out of the engine. It's, Jesus. it's great. Just a big bull in yeah. the air. Good so, times. but you've uh, so you, have you stayed away from the skies yourself? You're sticking to motorcycles, or? Well, yeah, I always wanted to fly. So actually, when I came down to Hawkes Bay, I uh, I got a private pilot's license. You know, it's when I think back, it's money I could have spent on something else. But uh, it's a lot of hours, it, right? To, it, to do well, that. yeah. I mean, you can get a license after you can go go uh, solo after. A few hours and and maybe after 20 if you're good you can get a private pilot's license but took me a bit longer than that and was that uh, just here at the yeah Aerodome, bridge, bridge Park. yeah yeah because they just circle all day well, well sunny days i should say you know. yeah i got a bit sick of that after a while yeah well you know you get your license and then you can you can fly with 25 nautical mile radius of the airport which i'd shoot off to the beach or over some you know have a look around but i never did any cross country so that got a bit I always boring. thought that uh, I could talk to the guys at Craggy Range and we could convince some Joe to fly us back and forth to Martinborough <laughs> to, to check on the, to, you yeah. know, to save us three yeah. hours, you know. But then yeah. in the back of my head, I'm always like, that's how winemakers die, you know, like, you know, on some, <laughs> we can make it. It's just a little bit of green. And, you know, I got to check on something up in Hawks Bay and then, next yeah. thing you know, you're, yeah. Yeah, this is the corporate jet you're talking about at the moment. Is that yeah. is that what you're thinking of? Well, I was. I don't think I was had any dreams of a corporate jet. I was thinking more of like uh, some well, of the planes you see flying around. Oh that, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, which are... Well, yeah, I had those same dreams. In fact, until we fully planted the bullnose vineyard, I'd had a kind of little bit that I thought would make a great airstrip, and uh, you know, I'd be flying in and out doing. Doing things. Well, you got a neighbor now. I see Chris Pass doing dips, yeah. dipsy doos one uh, yeah. a couple of years ago when he moved to that new house. Yeah, I chatted him up before he went to England uh, last year, and he said, "Right, oh, when you get back, we'll go for a fly." So, uh, but uh, he's he's a reasonable amount older than me. I'm not sure about going for a fly, <laughs> old boys. Yeah, I don't know if I trust myself, let alone someone else. So you said you when you got to Hawks Bay. When was the first time you were in Hawks Bay? F- for the job, you mean? Or just whenever. When was your... What? My, um, uh, it's not really why I'm here, of course, but my my mother's parents came from around here. Her, her father, my grandfather, was um, on on her side, was uh, worked for the Ministry of Works on, on viaducts and tunnels to do with the electro, you know, the, the, the dams for power stations and uh, all through the 20s and 30s and... Um, and they were sort of based and lived when they retired. They were Napier people. And uh, so I'd been here a fair bit. We used to visit when I was really young. Uh, and I came down once or twice to see Tomato, funnily enough. Came down to a little seminar thing they put on about 1980 mm. uh, that uh, Peter Saunders and John Buck ran. And uh, I was already kind of committed to the wine game by then but and then came down for the job in 1984 1980 tomato i mean who else would have been you know at least i don't want to say big guns but maybe uh 
you know, as you know, in that respectable sort of category, like Tomato was. Yeah. You know, I, I think a lot of time being outside of it and coming to Hawks Bay late, it's a lot simpler for me to think of this in waves, you know, and like, okay, there was the, you know, like I talked to Tim Turvey a while back and to me, it seemed like all of a sudden there was Sacred Hill, Clearview and Crab Farm and a few, you know, right around that yep. time. And then, yep. so if you're going back to 1980, who's, who's, who's the, well, they were around? the classics. I mean, you know, to sort of do it in reverse, the, the, the new wineries were probably Kim Salonius at Estdale. He was the first of the boutiques, I guess. Um, I mean, Peter Robertson was reasonably well established. I, th I think his company's called um, Brookfield's Vineyard 77 Limited. So, yeah, uh, that's yeah, right. I well, actually, the, yeah, the two of those uh, w would be the newbies, and then uh, you know there were there were the ones that have been around. Vitals, Vital, yeah, yeah. Um, McWilliams. One when when I first turned up, you know, that turned into. Uh, I can't remember how it went. Uh, you know, went from one company to the other, and of course that's all part of Pernod Ricard these days. But um, I'm missing a couple. You know, Brook, yeah, Brookfields, uh, Esk, probably Esk, some that aren't here anymore. Eskdale, Esk Valley, Valley. The, the Bird Brothers. They they did in '85. They did a makeover and had some. The, the boys had finally taken over from their old man and uh, made some pretty decent wine, good reds, and mm. uh, in a, a more modern label. They have best known in Hawke's Bay up to that stage for the, a drink called Screwdriver, which is a oh, sort of a, a, a vodka they made themselves in this, and they're still with, <laughs> with, with, with some sort of orange flavor in it. Wow, different times. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you know, and, and in out, out down the end of Tomato Road, there were the, the two wineries, um, well, one of them just good grapes, but Monteverdi and Lom Lombardi, Lombardi the, the Green yeah. Brothers, yeah. Um, you know, and they, uh, uh, Lombardi were making table wine as well as liqueurs. I feel like I've seen an old bottle of Lombardi like on display somewhere. Or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was some. So, so there wasn't a lot happening. Yeah, uh, but uh, you know, everyone was happy. And uh... so when uh, obviously the history of Tomata, you know, it says uh, what's the year on the bottle? Eighteen ninety-six was the first vintage. And when did? John get involved, uh, he or his family John, were they always kind of involved? Well, or? no, they weren't. No, no. So John, you, you know much about John. He, uh, he, I don't know what his wine interest interest was before he went to London, but he went to London in the sixties. You know, the classic New Zealand OE thing, and got involved in uh, in in the wine game. He worked for an English wine merchant called Stoles of Chelsea. Uh, did some of the exams and and got. Um, you know, WSET exams in those days, and and he, when he came back to New Zealand, he sort of became Mr. Wine New Zealand along with Graham. Uh, what's his name again? He there was a chef who, ex Air Force chef, funnily enough, um, who it'll, it'll come to me in a minute. Mm -hmm. um, he was the sort of food guy, so he'd talk on the radio and have a spot on TV and and and, and a page in the Listener. And John did the same thing with wine. He he was. There were a few identities around, but John's a little bit more out there and yeah, promoted, yeah, you know, promoted himself, himself well. Forward, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he was very knowledgeable. He's always had a good palate. Um, and uh, he and a, a friend of theirs in Wellington, he was based in Wellington for when they got back, um, decided to have a winery. Yeah. And they looked around and Tomato came up and they bought it in 74. 
Uh, they didn't physically take it over, take it over till '79. Oh, okay. Little tra- five-year transition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it was a sort of a workout, and uh, yeah, yeah, they, they yeah, probably should have got the timing of it different. It's '79. If you, if you, if you know, no, you know about those days. It was the absolute worst vintage. It started raining sometime in September or October and didn't stop. Mm. Uh, so well, it's some, sometimes when I hear about those really old, terrible vintages, I'm like, oh, well, at least. It's not a new thing. <laughs> like it happens every yeah. so often, you know. Well, it wouldn't be as terrible now, you know. We're better. I, I imagine all the soils were worked up between the vines, and of course, then they, you know, they just could not get in with a tractor in those days. And now we all have grass. It dries out quicker, and you know, it's yeah. firmer and wet weather. And get in and do it. Yeah. So then, they're kind of rolling pretty good. By got a good reputation. I know. Coleraine and everything was start well well going by the time yeah. you arrived in '85. Yeah. Well, the the, the way that kind of went, you know, the notable kind of events were there was a Vitals Vineyard that came with with uh, with the package and um, with with Cabernet planted. It wasn't that old, but I guess it was maybe 15 years old. So they made a Cabernet um, in in '80. Mike, Mike Bennett was their winemaker in those days. He's a terrific guy. He'd done some winemaking in Portugal and uh, worked for Vitals and, and he was the winemaker. They made a straight Cabernet in 80 and 81. They didn't have Merlot. I don't know if anyone had Merlot in hmm. those times. It seems crazy, you know, if you, when you think of what happened after that. But yeah. And the Cabernet won uh, the best red of the 81, uh, what was the Air New Zealand show, I forget what they call it now, and, and then the 81 straight Cabernet won the best wine of... Um, of the 82 show so that really kind of got things going um, now th- then we had the 82 vintage which was an El Nino year dry warm and and made uh, the Avatar and Coleraine were outstanding wines and and dark and heavily fruited uh, some people didn't understand them I mean, I remember one journalist said they're just a kind of fruit juice they, you know they didn't, yeah, couldn't yeah. get their head around them um, and and one or both of them got silver medals in in the in the show. So that was the last time John ever showed a wine. Um, under yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He lost confidence and never regained it. Um, it's a funny game. I don't, you know, that's one marketing thing that uh, I probably don't participate in a lot, and it's kind of for that same reason. I mean, obviously, you know. Tomato is at like a different level and is more established and all that, so they kind of don't have to do it or uh, and chose so long ago. But you know, there's part of me that's like, well, the wine's selling, why would I enter it in and just get a bronze or something, you know? And then, yeah, you stack it up against all these other wines, and I'm like, people seem to like it, so yeah, yeah every yeah. once in a while, I'll put one in if I think, oh, this one might have a shot or something, but it's not, <laughs> no, well, that's you know, or yeah. like Viognier, I'll put it in, yeah. I'm like, what do I got to lose? It's Viognier, yeah. but I, I. I completely understand that uh, mentality yeah. for that because you're like, well, wait a minute. There's a lot of people who think this is a great wine, so what's it going to say on one day? It, it could hurt, just hurt me, you know? That That's that's exactly right. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, the best way to be involved in a wine show is to be a judge. Yeah. You've got nothing to lose, <laughs> and, and you can see, you know, I mean, they're... There's usually a pretty pretty able bunch of people, you know, three judges, uh, and 
And on average, you're going to get about the same result. It's not going to go from gold to no award that, yeah, that yeah, often yeah. at all. But um, but I certainly yeah. think there's a style thing that, you know, if, if the wines are a little more understated or a little more maybe, I, I don't want to use maybe not the word European in style, but a little mm. more like a food-friendly wine and denser wine or something yep. like that instead yep. of just ones that you, jump out you, of the glass. You miss those yeah. every time. Yeah, almost. Well, you know, you, you you don't. Maybe one out of the three judges will pick up on it, and and uh, and if the difference, if, if the marks are that different, you'll have a chat, and maybe you'll have another look at it and go back and go, well, yeah, actually, that's pretty good wine. Yeah, and you hope that's actually happening behind the scenes, but you, there's, yeah, there's there's a, a bit of that. that. Yeah. There's a bit of that. You do. Uh, you might yeah, miss yeah. that first yeah, yeah. round, yeah. though. Because a lot of times what they do is they'll say, hey, these are the good ones. Let's go back and visit them later. But the ones that don't make the cut. Absolutely. I mean, if it's looking kind of low silverish, you know, you just don't ask any questions. You usually move on to the next wine. But if someone goes big on it and mm. two other marks are low silver, you, you, you probably should have a bit of a discussion. You know, my take on uh, on us in wine shows is... is I, I remember in the first few years thinking, you know, a little bit disappointed some of them everyone showed their wines and you know winemakers were getting bonuses and trips to Europe and I thought oh hang on a minute you know <laughs> it, but in a very short time I kind of saw the picture and how it was working for us you know we, we made the wines that we liked which is a it, it's it's a great pleasure to make wine like that rather than look at everyone else's wine that's won golds and try and copy it you know? yeah no yeah. it's just I wouldn't know how to do that anyway. I'd, so, I don't think yeah. we would either. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's funny when uh, people say, how did you, like, for instance, Malbec. I make Malbec and they, you know, they'll taste that over in America or something. And they'll go, how'd you do that? I didn't do anything. It's just New Zealand Malbec smells like that, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's just a bit weird. So, um, yeah. sometimes it's good to just get out of the way. But anyway, so. 85, we're kind of around your, your, is that when you arrived? Or 84? Uh, 84, yeah. yeah. And uh, things are rolling then, and and uh, what else is happening? Well, um, I you know when I turned up in '84, um, the uh, the '83 was still in barrel, so I find and bottled that. That was a very special vintage as well. That was kind of an 18 month roll with the El Nino effect and the climate. Mm. And '84 uh, um, was a bit of a come down after that. They, <laughs> you know, the young Young vineyards and cooler weather. Um, Eighty-five was very useful. In fact, and we've we've done three full verticals of cold rain in the last few months, and and I'd never ch- I would never hold the eighty-five up as one of the one of the wines that you know would be in the top ten. But a couple of wine writers have identified it as one that's they like it. It's a little more savoury, but I've, in fact they kind of mentioned that. But mm. it's it's just got great structure. So. Not to cut you off there, but I was just thinking about those wines at the time. And granted, Tomatas wines tend to be a little more understated. Would it be fair to say that? Yeah. I haven't, I mean, come, when, I haven't come with a prepared statement on that one. I, well, I, 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 I just want to say they're yeah. not, they don't tend to be over oaked. They don't tend to be super extracted. They don't, you know, so if we don't want to use the or, term understated. Or, yeah, or over ripened. Or over ripened or anything and, like and that. And all of those are, are, so, are deliberate. Given yeah. that, in the in the grand 
scheme of the wine world at the time, and I'm not talking about now, now yeah. we could talk about now, but uh, do you, you know, there was certainly an excitement generating about New Zealand wine, and I think part of it is that purity of fruit and the fact that, you know, of course, Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc, but if you look at even Hawke's Bay Reds, when I take out Hawke's Bay wines, which I've brought out, you know, over the years, Tiawa, Vital, that brought them to friends in America and everything, they go, wow, that is just doesn't smell or taste like much else in the world. Do you think yeah. at the time, granted, in, in keeping in mind that they were understated, I'm using the quotes here, that they were special in that sense already at the time? Or was it kind of old school and you didn't really see much of a difference between them and Bordeaux or something, you know? Well, it's, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a big kind of rolling mall of a question. It's a big, it's a big question. <laughs> but I'm just saying, you know, the, the, do you think in the, you know, I, I would say... I've tasted some old Hawks Bay wines, and and I, I can't say I've tasted you know '80s mm. Coleraine, and uh, I just at, you know I've, I thought oh these are you know kind of sit in the world of wine in the '80s, but sort of by the '90s if you go back and listen uh, taste you know I've tasted some old Vital stuff and, I, and yeah. I thought well these are pretty pure pretty cleaner wines they're you know maybe the screw caps coming into play a little more by then as well yeah yeah. Um, what do you think style-wise those wines were? Well, and was there a conscious, yeah. you know? I mean, the way J- John Buck tells the story, and and uh, uh, he, he was always a Bordeaux man, um, and and so was I. I, I. I started working in restaurants when I was at school, and, and you know, and, and that was sort of, gee, I don't know when that was, early 70s, you know, mm-hmm. by the mid-70s I'd worked in restaurants and then I was, after uni, I ran a wine bar and a restaurant for a while and I was stuck on wine and, and, and I was a Bordeaux man. And and you you see you see most of those elements, the attractive elements of Bordeaux red in, in Hawke's Bay. Mm. You, you, you get that, uh, you know, red, red and dark fruit character, which, which is... Which is fruit. It doesn't tend to be overripe, and not that that was any big thing back in those days. That wonderful tannin, lots of it, nicely ripe. You know, sort of powdery, I suppose. You know, when it's when it's just right, um, and the freshness and the weight of the wine is midweight, unashamedly midweight. It's just such a delicious drink, and 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 you saw that in in the Vitals wines and in, in those early. Um, you know, 80, 81 Cabernet, 82, 83 Colerain, well, you know, all the, um, and, and others, you know, Brookfield's wines and, and those early Glen Dale, Glen... Eskdale. Eskdale. Yeah. Esk uh, Esk Valley, sorry, I lost <laughs> that. Um, they, um, it was called Glen Vale, the label when they were making Screwdriver. Uh, so, and, you know, and the early players were pretty convinced that that was... That's what Hawke's Bay did. Climate and soils were about right. Uh, and, and, you know, you sort of became more and more convinced. And, of course, that style of wine was everything in the 70s and 80s. Uh, yeah. It's just burgundy. It was something you never saw a bottle of. And even when you did it, wasn't much good. Um, and, and so it was, a, it was a Bordeaux world. Actually, you know, most Kiwis are surprised to learn it still is. Um, yeah. For, you know, yeah, no, definitely. It's just... Uh, uh, so, and, uh, you know, apart from one little hiccup when I went to California and in the late 80s and I went up to 
see an outfit called Jordan and Alexander Valley, and yep, it was about 40 it. degrees, and wasn't their wine in particular, but it's a very smart-looking place. And um, uh, you know, we had a look at others, and I, I just thought, wow, my God, is this what you need? Um, I'll, I'll have to backtrack here, but you know, is this what you need to make great Cabernet-based wines? Because what happened in the 80s, you kind of said, well, what was going on in the 80s? Well, 85, 86, and 88, we got the tail end of a cyclone. Just It came down from the Pacific and parked off the East Cape, and it was just hot soup for 10, 10 days. Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, 88, the, the last one was Cyclone Bowler. It was sort of six inches of rain here over a few days, and... Um, there were floods in the rivers, and I, and I, I ran about that time. I was thinking, whoa, well, you know, have I come to the wrong place? <laughs> and we've never seen anything like it since. Yeah, thank goodness. But that's that's the kind of background of some of those wines in the eighties. There was too much water around. They were warm enough years, um, eighty five, eighty seven in the highlights, and then we had three really pretty smart vintages, eighty nine, ninety, ninety one. Some I know, I know, Vitals preferred the ninety to the ninety one. I think '89 just came along and surprised people, and we didn't. We kind of picked the grapes, and the weather carried on being great. And uh, I, I'm sure others had the same experience. You thought, "Oh, could have ripened that a bit more." Yeah, you know? yeah, you're right. Um, sure, yeah. But they're, they're, those three are why you know three vintages have made wines that still look good. Uh, and then we, then we went into another. Classic ninety two, ninety three with the Pinatubo years. You know, Pinatubo, the, what's the that? Eruption, the eruption, the eruption in the Philippines. Oh yeah, that's and, right. And yeah. we really, you walk out in the middle of summer, you walk out of the house in the morning, and the sun would be shining, and it would just be cool. Mm. It carried on for two, two years till the ash had disappeared, and uh, uh, it was a bit like a repeat of the eighties. And ninety four was a great vintage after those, but looking back, it was a bit average. So when you went to Jordan, you saw a lot of bells and whistles and a lot of oak or something, or what was? No, just the heat. That forty oh, degree day. Heat, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't yeah, finish yeah. that story, did I? It no, was no, just. Right. Uh, you know, we we never see anything like that here. We, we, yeah, no, we, it's a whole other thing. Yeah. The funny thing about over there, though, and I've done a couple of vintages, is it's almost like the heat. Okay, that makes I suppose in the and how dry it is, it makes things easier, but it still needs to hang out. If it's Cabernet, and I would go, I, I never forget the first time I went out vineyard sampling. Well, the first few times I went out for a little winery called Pina, and I was <laughs> tasting the fruit, and I go, "Oh, this is kind of green still." So we got a few weeks, you know, and then I went into the, into the lab, and it was twenty-seven bricks, and I went, "Oh, that's why it's not because they're letting yeah. it hang out to try yeah. to make high alcohol. It's because yeah. it's not ready." Yeah, you know. So they have their other challenges there, you know. Yeah, you're, you're quite right. But Phil, uh, our winemaker these days, has just been up there on a quick trip and he, he crammed a lot of visits in. Uh, he went to have a look at a bit of gear that we've just bought for this coming vintage. And, uh, yep, he said that some of the guys he visited, picking at 27, mm -hmm. Sanye, they run, run off some juice straight away to concentrate even more, and then they put some water back in later on. Yep. Because they can't have 17% wines. Yeah. I, you know, they're pretty smart wines. I think some of them would taste a little overdone and jammy, but others, they're clever guys, got a lot of dough, and I think those wines would come back into some sort of balance. But the thing about Hawke's Bay is you get that hang time, and it's not necessarily about the accumulated heat and 
you know, because we can't do it earlier. It, it's just in, in Hawke's Bay. Uh, I mean, the, the, the green side of Cabernet, which, you know, I just want to kill people, you know, people who don't even make Cabernet these days or have no interest or who do, do it badly are forever saying, uh, you know, oh, your Cabernet's great, Hawke's Bay in a good year. Well, mm, you know, I would, it, I would, it's, it's good every I year. Think it's, I, would, I think it's better than a lot of other varietals and possibly Syrah as well because Ooh, stop you know, that. I know that's, that's, I would uh, say on a, yeah. in the world of wine I you know I'd probably be heresy to say that too loud to some people in Hawks Bay but uh, Cabernets we just poured them in New York uh, at a, a master class in New York earlier this year it's almost the end of the year now but and the Cabernet flight was what everybody was like whoa what are these these are fresh these are ripe they yeah okay they're not as sensitive to the you know maybe a little tea leaf herbal thing we we probably are oversensitive to it because there was certainly yeah. some bad yeah. ones it's, back in it's, the day. It's a it's a chip on the shoulder. Definitely. And 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 even from people that really got no skin in the game, you know they think uh, you know being an apologist for cabernet somehow makes the other stuff we grow better, you know in people's eyes, and it you know I, it doesn't work that way. It's a sort of a kiwi thing to sort of start off low and yeah, then yeah. talk about what you do well. I do. We, we should form a very small club because I don't take much encouragement to, uh, to I'm just totally convinced the Cab Merlot well, Jason's thing, you know, or Merlot Cab yeah, uh, yeah. is what, uh, you know, we, we've been at it for so long in Hawke's Bay. It's so reliable, you know, mm. nine times out of ten it's fantastic and the other year it's pretty damn good as well. Uh, you know, whereas Saran, we love it dearly. It's just more variable. It doesn't like the rain. And it, and it you know, it doesn't have as much character. Uh, it, it's, it, you know, it's a mid-weight wine, a kind of a bit like Pinot in some ways, a little bit heavier than that. And uh, it's so easy to muck it up with oak too. There's a fine fragrance, you know, Absolutely, that yeah. people go on about the spice. If you've got too much, it's not right. But, you know, that sort of fragrance and, and um, star and easy sort of thing, the way I see it in a nicely ripe, just, you just see it above this lovely fruit, you know, floral fruit. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take much oak to muck that up. And it's, you know, it, it's done. a fine line. Whereas <laughs> decent Cab Merlot just eats oak. Um, well, you know, you don't put in more than you want, but... Uh, yeah, there it got me going there. Just a bit, just oh, a big incoherent just, ramble once that's I get why we're going. Here, you know? Yeah, we're all about that. Yeah, I, th I think uh, there's a few other people out there. Jason at Peritobian, one of the same as loves Cabernet and and the, the Bordeaux blends and stuff, who would go on and on about it the same way. You know? Yeah, and uh, and funny you say that. Uh, likes is kind of shifting Syrah into large format to get away from being too heavily oaked so mm. there you go we are, we got three in our yeah you now. all right <laughs> we're on a roll though i do love pinot noir a lot uh and i but i find it just so damn finicky and um a bit of a pain in the ass but you know those are years down the road when you see the rewards for that but yep. i will say in a at what i have experienced and now that i know a little bit more what i'm doing now on a tough year pinot it's okay to release a 12 percent lighter style pinot where you be trouble to get away with that with some other varietals, I think, you know. And and the public might yeah. accept it more, you know. It's, it's unlike the cool Pinot, a faith-based uh, kind of thing. You, you're bought in anyway, so they're all, you know, you love them all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, 
Yeah, that's right. There's a, there's a smaller margin of tolerance with other wine styles. People do want something very highly coloured with a lot of fruit flavour and, and weight. And it's pretty much what you get all the time with Cabernet without... Mer, Merlot, you know, I keep going on about Cabernet, but Merlot and Hawke's Bay is fantastic. And Merlot, you know, heavy Merlot um, percentage wines are, are terrific, as good as Cabernet-dominant ones, of course. So, you, uh, first of all, thank you. You showed up with a bottle of Awatia today. I appreciate that. That is can't, Merlot dominant of the year? Visit. No, it's just Cabernet dominant. About 50% Cabernet, 35 Merlot. Okay. Maybe, oh, that's not quite right. It's about, historically, 45% Cabernet, 40, 45, and about the same of Merlot, about 15, 20% Cab Franc. And without giving away too many secrets, Coleraine is... Sem- same varietals, different slightly. Yeah, more, more, more Cabernet. I mean, okay. we, we love Cabernet, uh, and, and uh, you don't want to impose yourself on the wine. It depends what comes through in the vintage. But sure. That wine's normally around 60% Cabernet Sauvignon. We've gone as high as sort of mid-60s on a year, like 98. We thought, great, here we go. Let's make a big high percentage. Mm. was much better with Merlot and some Cab Franc in it. So that was only about 70%. Now I'm going to say something. Slightly controversial, but I want to hear your thoughts on this. This might be flattering to you. It might, it might be not. I have no I idea. I don't respond well to flattery. <laughs> uh, one of the first wines I had from Tomata, I, it could have been when I was in the States, but I don't know for sure. And that I got to say year in and year out, I absolutely love is the Cape Crest. And I think in the world of wine, that uh, wine is a wine that just, you know, and I'm not somebody who jumps yep. to savvy all the time. I don't drink a lot of Sauvignon mm. Blanc, but... I will go to that in my cellar and drink a bottle of that and show it to friends and say, taste some of that. And, and it, like every year, it's it's magic. You know, it's a great, yeah. great wine. I think that, um, especially to a, like somebody who's international, I'm, I'm, that wine comes across everybody. You know, it's sort of exciting right away when you open that bottle, yeah. you know. And uh, whether that has to do with the Hawks Bay style, how you guys do it with a little bit of, there's Semillon Gris and Semillon in yeah. there every yeah. year. Um, how long has that wine been like, or at least done like that? <clears throat> well, the label started in 82 uh, with, with a vineyard. We had two Sauvignon Blancs, and one of them was in Tijuana. Uh, it was a straight uh, Sauvignon, and, and it, it, it was in a great spot, just sort of overlooking the sea on a gravel bank. And uh, uh, and, and I started with 80, 80, 85, 86. I did a couple of barrels of... Um, of barrel ferment with with that wine um, and just to have a look and it really did something for the texture and just gave you sort of nuances of something else in the wine rather mm. than just fruit and and uh, shortly after by degrees we we did more and more barrel fermentation and then sort of mid 90s we went well okay we've got it we're, we're making a Bordeaux white here so we planted Semillon and Sauvignon Gris which is a pink clone of Sauvignon Blanc um, and um, by the very early 2000s, that wine was a what well, was 100% barrel fermented in '95. But it, we we had the blend that we we do now. And the the trick is with our labelling laws. Uh, if you want to call the wine Sauvignon Blanc, which is kind of still the category that we're fishing in, yeah. um, it's got to be 85%. So we can only put 15% of other in. 
which swapped around. The, the Gris looked more attractive than the Semillon, and then when the Semillon got a few years of age, we, we try to put as much in as we can. And the Gris just has this kind of, I don't even know what, I'd be making it up if I said what it, it just, it just gives the wine a little bit more interest on, on mm. the nose, and you know, you know, maybe a floral twist or something. Yeah. Uh, and the semi on that ageability, you think, is a lot with that? Yeah, it gives the wine a bit of cut too, you know. Sauvignon's sort of so overbearing and, and you know, direct and kind of one one flavour note sort of thing. And, and, and But the weight of it too can be quite heavy and, yeah. you know, charged through the palate. So semi on lightens it up just a little bit. And uh, uh, and it's so it's totally, what you know, we like to say it's unique when we're, selling the wine I'm out there trying to think of something clever to sell it and and it's unique not on that we're doing anything too crazy but you add the whole thing up you know it's totally barrel fermented and about 30 percent new oak uh, it doesn't it doesn't sound like it's going to work in a New Zealand context and it works really well, well I could see in the same yeah. way that would the same way you, you said earlier that you know Cabernet eats up oak yeah. I could see yeah. it doing the same thing you yeah. know and sort of meeting it mm. you know right mm. and we're without clashing you know just yep. kind of meet, meeting it halfway and saying yeah we can take you on oak bring it you know it it's it's never uh, so, so that that it is now based between the bullnose vineyard and we've got a vineyard next door called isosceles just down the road here so that's it's planted that in 99 um it's been based there and and we we it's too cane. We we don't pull fruit off it, but uh, it doesn't crop that high with two canes. And we pull a few leaves and get some sunlight in, so it it never looks like a typical New Zealand Sauvignon. Although there's enough New Zealand Sauvignon what do you mean, four about and, uh, it. Yeah, twenty tons per hectare. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't look yeah. like that. <laughs> uh, and and because of that, it ages really well. It's, mm. it's there's always a couple of the go-to wine at the moment is uh, I've forgotten oh seven. Um, you know, there's always one that's about 10, 12 years old. It's just wonderful. You know, it has none of that. Um, I mean, it's the best example. They, they all age pretty well, um, but uh, it's it's quite an inspiring wine. It still keeps its freshness. It's very fine. That wine's always bone dry, so you get the acid, fruit sweetness, touch of tannin on the finish. And Yeah, I've never had yeah. an old one that went to, like, yeah. stew peas or anything like that, you know, which some savvy can do that's, after in five years, let alone ten. Yeah, know. yeah. That's, you know, there's only be one in ten that'll, that'll show any suggestion of, of that sort of tinned, tinned uh, vegetable kind mm. of character. Yeah, yeah, good wine to pick on. I mean, we love it dearly. It's a bit hard to get traction with. We sell about two thousand cases, and we, we, the the markets that love it, and we're selling a lot to Russians at the moment. Um, oh. Well, I have done for quite a few years. The Australians, uh, they 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 know it, they get it. They but you know, in New Zealand, it's just another Sauvignon Blanc. I think to a lot yeah, of yeah. I was going to say that wine. I think would stand out more. In yeah, America, you know, export mm. markets would probably, uh, you know, and it probably sits slightly above in a price point, so that you know it's a, a special wine and everything. And yeah. If not, um, but I suppose that's part of the issue of being from Hawkes Bay is you do just get grouped up with the rest of New yeah. Zealand, and, yeah. and they don't know um, why something's special. But another uh, thing I'm thinking about Hawkes Bay while I'm sitting here talking to you is like we haven't really talked about Syrah that much, but we haven't talked about Chardonnay. You guys yeah. make a Viognier, which I love Viognier. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, our problems here are that 
there's a lot of good things to choose from. Well, <laughs> that's why I stayed here in Hawke's Bay. Yeah. You know? Um, so, uh, yeah. How long have you been making veal Uh Well, I don't think I'm wrong when I say we, we came out with the first one in, in 97. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think... At the time, and we tried to find anyone who ever talked about it. And Dry River was one, and and uh, Neil McCallum said he he he'd had a couple of rows, and he still hadn't cropped them at that stage. I thought, I don't know, maybe they're getting frosted. Well, although I must say, we got hardly any crop for the first three, three, have three four yeah, years, yeah. and once it kicked in, it's it's a bit more variable than than most. But crazy, crazy vine, you know, the way it grows, and it's these double shoots and. Uh, and you leaf pluck it completely. Mm-hmm. The more golden, the more flavour you get, uh, yeah. and 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 it doesn't. I think the wine has sort of concentration that it, any any tannin it gets off those skins, and you know the exposure to the sun is is, is part of the wine. It's uh, yeah. yeah, but that uh, the Zara Viognier has never been also well super high pH and flabby or soapy or anything like that. It's well, always remains some tension yeah. there, you know. I'll have to bring a bottle around. We we had a, um, when we were about to make it, I did a couple of trips to Europe and had a look, look at around a few a few places. And uh, and they said, well, you know, we don't really do Malo. We will if we have to. Um, and, uh, and so we made about 15 or more in a row with, with no Malo at a, at a, Typical, more typical white wine pH, and so they were pretty fresh. Uh, you needed a, a, a warm year uh, to to really bring out the you know the more luscious side of that the, the aroma and flavour. Um, and we looked at Malo a couple of times towards the end of that, and we went, oh no, it's just not doing nothing. And then we looked at it again about four years ago, and we went, my God, it's you know it's phenomenal. Um, so I don't know, maybe the age of the vine. So we have, it's been full Malo, and the pH does look silly now, 3.7, 3.8. Bone dry, so you kind of use the alcohol to give it a bit of cut on the finish yeah. rather than acid. Uh, and, uh, and the intro, the last one that had no Malo, the, the 09, I dragged it out the other guy the other day for the guys, and it... it it does look great. I mean, I think you can go either way, but Malo really works. Um, I don't think oak works with it. No, yeah, yeah. I think there's. Yeah. I, I find yeah. that sometimes when they're made with oak, and sometimes, and a lot of times, Malo's gone hand in hand with that. Is they t- tend to be like a Chardonnay copy, and instead of a Viognier, you know. Yeah. And they yeah. just sort of dumb it down, and I'm like, well, what's the point of making a Viognier? Yeah. Then? You know, like yeah. meant to be. Yeah. Have some seafood and some spice there, and you know. Absolutely, you know. it's it's a glorious flavour. I, I, there's, there's a white stone. This sort of this is pathetic. This, but I, it, there's something a little like uh, lychee that's called a rambutan yeah. in the east, and I don't even remember what it. But I just I remember tasting the samples out of the tank a few years ago, because it, it's very hard to put your finger exactly on what that. Aroma and flavor is that the way it expresses in Hawke's Bay in particular. Yeah, we've um, I've tried to write tasting notes the last few years, and it's I wrote a whole orange, page once. Orange peel and uh, yeah, absolutely. You, you tend to use floral as a broad yep. term, but yep. it's uh, 
Yeah, there's something you can't quite, you're right, that you can't quite put your finger you, you on. You can get melon. Um, I'm thinking of a honeydew melon as well, and which is not something you ever see in any, any other white variety. Um, and uh, Honeydew, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I love I love it. Well, it's, we sort of combine these clubs here. There'll be yeah. Yeah, <laughs> six of some, us now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there might be a few uh, yeah. DNA lovers out there. Um, and so, we uh, not to fast forward through all these great vintages we've had the last 10 years, but we've touched on that. Uh, you're what, eight months counting till, till a shift in hours, basically, would we call it? Uh, yeah, well, it's more than that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I had no plan. You know, you, you go from year to year in the wine industry, and uh, um, I saw the light a few years ago. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's different. If, if you've got real skin in the game, you own the company or part of it. And, and I, I, I did have shares in Tomato. We, we ended up, John, John and Michael and their wives, you know, we, we swapped shares with the Bullnose Vineyard, which was going to be a project of mine. Or, you know, there was going to be a winery. The distance, we swapped shares. I got some of the winery and, um, and they, you know, became shareholders in the Bullnose Vineyard and... and uh, so you know, and we've got very able guys. No one gets out of tomato alive. Really. No, you know, it's our winemaker's been there twenty odd years. The yeah. assistants now coming up, now oh, good, good fifteen, and viticulturalists, twenty five years, uh, and these guys want to take over. You know, they they, they <laughs> they're looking well, at you. <laughs> they're going to be sixty by the time I hand over the reins. So you know, about five years ago, I thought, well, okay, I've got it. You know, I really should, um, and and. It's a total commitment game, winemaking. You just don't get time to do other stuff. So I said, okay, I'll retire when I'm 65. And one of the nice things that's happening is, is um, you know, work. Um, we're talking about me having a rollover vintage for a few years because I've based, based, you know, I've known all of our vineyards for 30, coming up 35 years. And, and there's kind of a lot of institutional knowledge that comes in handy when you're having a uh, you know, probably more difficult vintage than a than a good one. I mean, sometimes any idiot can make great wine a good great vintage, but um, it's just aspects of the vineyards and you know how they perform and what to do in the difficult years. And and so I, um, it looks like I'll play some sort of rollover vintage for a few years. I, I would think uh, they'd have to wean you off a bit because everybody says, "What's your favorite part of winemaking?" And I don't even blink before I say vintage because. That is for me the time of year where you you're so focused and you're so honed in and you have there's nothing else to be done. You can't you're not going away on sales trips. You're not thinking about the marketing. You're not thinking yeah. you're just like yeah. We got to pick. We got to make wine. We got to keep working. We got we're on our feet. We may have time to grab a nice meal somewhere in between, but we just you got to keep moving. And there's that window there. And honestly, I'm only well, eleven years in. I don't know what the hell I would do with myself from March to, wow. to February to, to May. You know, I kind of, you know, so I get a feeling if they cut you cold turkey, you'd just show up. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. It, it's quite funny, my situation in that, uh, you know what? I used to dread vintage. Uh, it, it, it's just, you know, we've we've been a 30,000 30, case winery for quite a while. Most of my career, I guess, twenty to 30,000 cases just getting a little bit bigger now and, and you've got to hold it all together and um 
and and you know it's, it's seven days 14 hours you know well you know there's longer hours than that sometimes and 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 just that whole aspect of the day the first grape comes in you basically say goodbye to your family yeah. it's like going to war yeah and uh i i used to it's probably not overdoing it too much i used to dread it but within a week yeah okay we've only got six weeks to go now yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and total commitment and then you do enjoy it and it probably is like a war and that you know you you're making all the right decisions logistically handing it all well but i used to do it um must you know basically run the whole thing myself and, and have a role in the vineyard as well as the winery. And, you know, you'd be 11 o'clock at night and slept for two days trying to think of some intricate plan of how you're going to fit all the fruit in and you just you know, yeah, yeah. Take, you, take you an hour to do oh, two, I'm not saying two frustrating. minutes worth of thinking. <laughs> but what, the point of this is I, I just, as, as I sort of gave, um, gave stuff away to our very able, you know, a terrific crew in the winery, and we're so sort of collegial, you know, the... Larry uh, Morgan, our viticulturalist, and Phil Brody, um, uh, you know, who, who's been with us a long time. We just work together so well as a team, just talking all the time. Um, uh, you know, Marty now, our uh, assistant, who's just been made a full winemaker. Uh, I've just kind of got more and more into the vineyard, and, and I almost in a way sort of realized very late in the piece that's kind of where my heart lies mm. i mean i'm kind of one of those guys who would rather think i'm making the wine in the vineyard bring it in and do this sounds like a typical sort of winery patter these days well you know you're sort of minimalist handling in the in the winery and we you know we we certainly not one of these wineries that kind of looking for tricks and no, kind of no. additives and and so on um, and never have been and, and still aren't and and so i just love that walking walking the vineyard and you know just running the harvest and well, i can't, uh, I can't and imagine anybody even the people that are pulling the tricks and doing this and that and adding all the salt and pepper that they don't know that if you don't get it right there it's just you're, it's an uphill battle, you know, or it's or it's not it's not a battle yeah. you're ever going to win. So you, um, you do what you got to do, I think, in you know some wineries and 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 some wine styles, you know, sort of price points and so on. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but I do think there's people out there that think they can, you know, you can add stuff to make a wine better, and I'd I'd rather the wine was kind of mm. you know kind of lacking something, but more pure and. I think you can taste it in the, you know, and again, you mentioned price point, but, you know, once you sort of get into a wine that somebody's actually going to appreciate, I think you could taste it when it's been knocked around a bit or added and, 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 yeah, you know, yeah, I hope that's who we're making wine for, or that's what I'm trying to, and I, I appreciate I might make some wines that just as soon as they get out on the shelf, they're cracked and open and drank and not thought about enough, and that's fine as well, but. You know, there's definitely some other wines that I hope people appreciate. You've got to, you've got to have that thought. You've got to, yeah, you've got you to have that know hope because, you know, you. I get a bit cynical now. You know, the number of our wines that people did crack, knock them off, and move on to the next one, and that's that's what happens. I mean, you know, we're the exception, obviously. People who uh, hmm. sniff every wine, you know, and uh, write a book about it. Back to the vineyard for a second, though. Where is it all Syrah at the Bullnose Vineyard? What's, no, what, it's what, not. What's no, there? It's, it's about a quarter Syrah. We we planted each. We're not too far off the mark. If if you know, if I said you know, it's a quarter each of the 
30 to the Bordeaux varieties. Hang on, I'm getting this really badly wrong. So we, we planted the first 10 acres. It's 40 acres. The first 10 acres was a quarter of each Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, and Merlot, and Syrah. Mm-hmm. And we kind of carried that on. Mm. And then, then we put in enough fruit for Cape Crest for quite a few years, but then the, we bought the vineyard next door as well for Cape Crest, basically. What um, What's the Syrah clones well, we started off with the one that's it's, it keeps changing its name. It didn't have a name when we got it. It was from Alan Limmer, oh, uh, which he got from from um, the research station in in, uh, in Hamilton before they pulled it out. Um, and he uh, an outfit called Rongapai with a second out with a Syrah in our times, recent times, um, and we got the cuttings from them. So we were kind of there. I think Babbage had a vineyard on Gimlet Road about the same time. They planted it sort of 88, mm. 89 when we planted planted ours. Um, and then, uh, so that's, it's 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 called Limmer sometimes, MS. MS, um, and, and somehow there's a big backstory now. I mean, I understood. Well, Parenteau is a 174, and somebody t- said the other day, I think that's one of the... Limmer clones, or it's a li- and I said, ah, I don't know. No, it's yeah. not. Yeah, uh, we, we, a different one. <laughs> we bought in. Uh, uh, no, we didn't bring them in. We we acquired some clones um, off. Uh, actually, we, the, the first thing we brought in was four seventy, which which we planted um, in about oh two oh two. We and and that block was completely cleaned out by hail. And 470 Shit. turns out to be, uh, it, it takes a while, but we, we, it makes, we really need that clone. It's beautiful. It's got a bit more, a bit more weight and intensity and a bit more floral fruit. Mm. Beautifully ripe, you know, per, perfumey sort of a character. I mean, the, the MS gets a bit, it's, I like it, very fine bone wine, and, and uh, it, we seem to get a bit more spice out of that. And then, then we ended up acquiring 174 and um, and a selection of wine from um, of grapes from uh, ah, lost it. Uh, which so so bullnose is now r- roughly a quarter each. Oh, okay. Of, of th- and do you find MS clubs. to be a little finicky some years? Yeah, it, it it tends it tends to have the thinner skins and and pack it in quite early. Yeah, and, and okay. I, I I goof and panicked. I'd never done that. But I didn't panic. I just thought last year, let's okay. I know what's going to happen. You know, yeah. got a bit of rain, and and it, it it would have been. It was almost great, but uh, we we picked it first, thinking okay, we got a nice tank of tank of Syrah. Um, but it, it's I, I love it. It's an old block now, and I, we're not we're not about to pull it out. Um, yeah, well, uh, the same. For you know, you go back to Limerclone, um, Dermot at Stonecroft now yeah. was basically saying the same thing that like you know I think they have Shav and maybe one other one, and then he's got the the main uh, Limerclone, yeah. and uh, he just said, and his Syrahs were tasting great at the Gibbet Gravels uh, little forum tasting yeah. we had and so a lot of people were asking about it and he sort of concluded at the end was like i wish i could just get my head around this damn limerick because <laughs> it's driving me crazy you know yeah <laughs> and it's like yeah. and everybody's like thinking well that's shit that's where it all started you know on that vineyard uh so it's pretty pretty ironic that he, he said that you know quick bit of cramp shaft yeah was well, i was drug well, I, was, I was thinking of grip art actually which they they uh the viticulturalist at nobolo's just Put some selections in. He put them through a proper nursery in quarantine, 
uh, and that was that 174 Charvin Grippart A and uh, B. Yeah. And we never liked the Grippart and the Charvin 174. We can't decide which one we, you know. Yeah, it is. But, uh, it's, but they've been a useful, useful addition. They do their own yeah. good things. Yeah. We've got some um, from the same guy actually. Uh, uh, is it? No, no, it's, it's someone else. But we we planted two years ago, so we 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 won't get a crop this year. Uh, what they call heritage clones from California. Uh, this McDowell, um, three, three or four of them, uh, okay. which are going to be really interesting. What I would love to see is a bunch that's a bit more open. Mm. They've all got tight, tight bunches, you know, set of pretty big bunch, pretty big berries. Pretty big shoulders. Uh, and, yeah. Yep, yeah. yep. And uh, it would be great to see a slightly more open bunch, and that might just add a whole new dimension. Just a bit feed more. it seaweed. That was my uh, research project at EIT was... Uh, Foliar seaweed sprays apparently lengthen the rackets on. The, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. No. I, yeah. Well, I, I think I got really lucky with my data, and it like looked like it worked. But uh, that was yeah. one of the things listed on this. Uh, yeah. It was called Acadian seaweed from Canada, and uh, needs that cool Arctic seaweed. Yeah. And uh, that was one of their biggest claims was that it loosened bunches. So. I, you know, if I, all else fails, I've missed that. Yeah. Uh, so we've been looking at everything. We. We tried last year, you know, this is shaking uh, method to reduce botrytis mainly, but it's also been used to, to shake the bunch up just mm. after flowering to sort of get rid of parts of the bunch and open it up and reduce the crop. And we did that with, with our Sharvin 174 last year and, and we did a proper scientific experiment and uh, measured everything and it made no difference to the crop mm. level. Didn't, didn't yeah, seem to I, I'd have up. to look back at all the literature but i think i remember it was it was a lot about timing of these sprays and obviously you know you're bringing in energy through the 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 foliar the foliar area and then at the right time of year when the bunch is starting to grow all these different things that are in the seaweed and of course it mattered on the the fermentation of the seaweed and all this kind of stuff that you know you had the right amount of boron and all these other things and that yeah when it grew it grew a little bit longer you know the bunches yeah, grew a little bit yeah. longer, and then so the bunches were looser, and yeah. uh, you know that was all. I wish I knew what I was doing when Sounds I did this. Sounds pretty research. cool. <laughs> not, not, seaweed's one of those sort of foliar fertilizers, which you know, I I think there's there's nitrogen in it. Some come out, excuse me, so that it. Um, I'm sure. You know, I'd be. You want to make sure you didn't get bigger berries as well. You know, yeah. if if everything's yeah. got bigger in there. Uh, yeah. But I think that again goes to the yeah. timing of when yeah. it's growing. But who knows? Yeah, you know, I'm sure we could. Yeah, there's no easy it's fix. A, that's for sure. It's 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 a troublesome variety in mm. in, in Hawke's Bay. As I mean, you look at those northern Rhone wines; they don't turn out, you know, one great wine after the next. They have a run of three pretty average years, you mm. know, because Syrah's difficult in in that type of climate. I mean, in a hot, dry, reliable climate, you can produce a a very reliable wine year after year, but it's not the style that we prefer. No, no. And, uh, well, it's like our Hawke's Bay Pinot, you know. It's not for the faint of heart, you know. Difficult, you know. Yeah. I, I, the funny thing is, I, you know, I, actually I shouldn't say anything about Pinot because I've, you know, made a career out of having nothing to do with it. But uh, but I, I, like, I like warmer climate Pinot. Well, we'll get you a Martinborough bottle on your way out yeah. and see what you tell me what you think. Ah, cheers. Yeah. 
Well, should we leave it there, man? Yeah. We just knocked out an hour. We could do wow. this again, uh, you know, in two or three years and uh, see where he stands. We'd probably get two hours in. Probably got more stories, you know. <laughs> I doubt it. Well, There'll be holiday stories. Well, restoring old motorcycles. Well, thanks for doing this. It's a pleasure. That was Cheers. great. I enjoyed it. Thanks. You got it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Peter. That was so great to talk to you. Great way to end the year with, uh, well, geez, I guess one of Hawke's Bay's most iconic wines, if not the most iconic wine. And um, again, got to make a better friend out of it. Peter and I were uh, acquaintances probably before that. I think we're going to probably have to hang out and have some dinner at some stage. But uh, thank you all for listening. It's been a great year for the podcast if you look through that list of people i've gotten to interview this year uh, between here and australia it's it's great dream come true and my curiosity drives this podcast if nobody was listening i'd probably still do it just for these opportunities to speak with some fascinating people i mean michael brakovich uh, uh, mike benny in australia these are ones you know uh, mark krasnow these guys have just been enlightening and uh, so fun to talk to uh, including a lot of our young winemakers and it'll be great to check in with them as the years go by i have no idea what next year uh, will be in store uh, but i have a lot of time to think about it harvest will be coming quick as the end of the year rolls down here i see the vines out my window growing quickly and uh, i won't have any time for podcasting or anything like this till won't even start thinking about it until sort of may and probably won't record anything until June or July. So plenty of time to think about it. If you guys have any ideas, always uh, you can email me, daniel at decibelwines.com. You can send us a note on Twitter uh, where I, and Instagram, Facebook, where I'm at decibeldan and uh, decibelwines on Facebook. And yeah, thank you very much for listening. Have a great Christmas, New Year's. And see you guys in 2019. Cheers.